Welcome to the Sidney J. Friedberg Lecture on Italian Art. In this lecture, presented on November the 4th, 2018, Stephen J. Campbell addresses the conflicted reception of the Venetian painter Titian outside his home city during a crucial phase in the formation of his reputation. His achievement of celebrity as a Habsburg court painter and his inclusion in an emerging canon of Venetian and Central Italian artists. While Titian's production for Habsburg patrons in Spain and other non-Italian destinations shows him performing as the quintessential artist of the Italian modern manner, by the mid-16th century, his work for sites in Italy pursued a different course. Artistic and critical reaction suggests that it was found to be inscrutable or alienating. Campbell's lecture proposes that this reception resulted from a tacit disavowal on Titian's part of contemporary critical accounts by Ludovico Dolce, Pietro Aretino, and Giorgio Vasari that increasingly sought to define his work. In a letter of 1553 to the sculptor-architect Jacopo Sansovino, Pietro Aretino took aim at the recently fashionable debate on whether painting or sculpture was superior art. This is a question that has been fought over not only more times than there are marbles and pigments in the world, but more than there are fanciful notions among those who carve and paint. Asking for my judgment in such a matter, which apparently Sansovino had, is a madness that only madness would endorse, since I little venture into making judgments on that which is impossible to judge, as long as there's been disegno in painting and sculpture. To oblige, to oblige you in this would be like trying to make a comparison between divine providence and human folly. In other words, Aretino thought the paragone, so-called paragone debate, was a waste of time. Now, he was complaining about a state of affairs that he had helped to bring about. While the previous century had seen the development of a body of words and concepts through which artists communicated to each other and to their publics about what they were doing, the role of non-specialists in the production of art theory and criticism and the popularity of art as a topic across many different kinds of writing had led to the monotonous circulation and repetition of formulas like the so-called paragone. When critical terms have become familiar and banal, to what extent are they really useful for understanding ambitious art? In art historical writing for the last few decades, the precepts of 16th century art criticism have been an essential key to understanding artistic practice, but sometimes to a point where anything that cannot be described in these terms is simply not available to inquiry. Such a state of affairs has beset the study of Titian in particular, his painting has often been treated as if it was no more than a painted illustration of what his contemporaries wrote about it, and the analysis of which terms look as such as these, colore, colorito, venezianita, poesia, and so on, uh, have circulated repetitively. Since the late 1500s, Titian has been the artist of the natural and the sensuous, facilitating a later academic construction of Titian and his art that persists to the present day. So he's the artist of the mirror, who holds the mirror up to nature, and also the artist of the sensuous uh, uh, nude in academic theory, as you see in Hans Mackhart's uh, 
um, decoration for the uh, Kunsthistorisches Museum in Vienna. And by the mid-1500s, Titian would have found himself conscripted into a different kind of critical paragone, one that understood multiple practices of Italian art in terms of a narrowing array of regional styles. The Roman, the Venetian, held to be polemically opposed to one to the other. Titian lived through a phase of what we call canon formation, whose aftermath we still live with, which culminated in the rise of institutional authority, the academies, and the assignment of absolute trans-historical value to certain artistic proper names. With the publication of Vasari's Lives in 1550, expanded in the edition of 1568, artists throughout Italy were faced with the possibility that where they trained and where they worked might be a liability to their reputation. Vasari's invention of the Renaissance had geographical as well as historiographical consequences, because for this most partisan of writers, geography was destiny. Readers were aware of the regionalist ideology at work in the lives, and among the first of the local rejoinders um, was, yes, uh, Ludovico Dolce's Aretino uh, dialogue, in which Aretino, who we began with, features as a speaker. Uh, published in Venice in 1557, a scathing attack on the Florentine Michelangelo, championed by Vasari, that insisted on the superiority of Titian. Among artists, the documented 16th century response to Vasari's lives in northern Italy was almost uniformly hostile. Both El Greco and the Bolognese Anibale Caracci, in their notes in the margins of Vasari, decried the Tuscan writer as a liar and taking him to task for his belittling treatment of great North Italian artists like Correggio. I'm putting Correggio on the screen for a second because he comes back a number of times in the lecture. Um, the great dome in Parma Cathedral, and uh, Vasari alleges that Correggio was always, could always only ever be provincial because he never went to Rome. Um, Anibale's anti-Vasarian initiatives had the broadest impact, and well, the, his, himself and the, the other Karachi, um, because they were grounded in a new approach to artistic theory and practice and to an understanding of Italian art in a form, far more geographically inclusive sense. The Milanese painter and writer Gian Paolo Lomazzo perhaps went furthest to formulate the principles of more inclusive trans-regional account of Italian art, some would say in a characteristically mannerist way. In the allegorical conceit of his idea of the temple of painting, Lomazzo imagined Italian painting as a system or structure of mutually reinforcing parts, sometimes analogous to a human body, but predominantly as a round temple supported by seven columns, each corresponding to one of the seven governors of the art, Michelangelo, Raphael, Leonardo, Titian, Mantegna, Polidoro de Caravaggio, and Gaudenzio Ferrari. Now, reading Lomazzo's idea a few years ago, I was surprised to see an element of hesitation regarding the relative merits and canonical status of Titian as opposed to Correggio. Lomazzo wonders whether he should, after all, have included Titian of one of his seven governors. I must not neglect to mention here, he says, that some painters have criticized me for not having chosen Antonio de Correggio in Titian's place. Now the hint that there's something provisional or discussable about Titian's inclusion points us towards a broader ambivalence about Titian in late 16th century Milan. 
In another ambitious work of uh, Milanese art criticism, Gregorio Comanini's 1591 dialogue Il Figino, on the ends of painting, Titian and other Venetian artists are conspicuous by their complete absence. Discussions of Raphael, Michelangelo, and Lombards like Archimboldo, you see here, are abundant. The silence of Comanini corresponds to a deeply conflicted recognition of Titian's exemplary status on the part of younger artists in Milan, where Titian was primarily represented by his 1541 1542 crowning with thorns for Santa Maria delle Grazie. Now, to be sure, at least two of Lomazzo's Milanese contemporaries, Simone Petrizzano of Bergamo and Giovanni da Monte from Crema, claimed to be pupils of Titian. It is worth asking why they advertise this connection, since there's no visual evidence of training under Titian or any signs of discipleship or affiliation in the works themselves. We know that Giovanni, an artist who would end his career in the service of the Emperor Maximilian II, copied Titian's famous series of the Caesars in the Ducal Palace of Mantua. That seems to be as far as it gets. His major works all seem to attach themselves to another artist from the Veneto, dead since 1539, but who cast a long shadow across northern Italy through the ongoing impact of works like these. So when we look at Giovanni de Monte here, I think, I think we're encouraged to think about Pordenone. Um, who is at that time would have been regarded as a rival uh, of Titian. In Habsburg, Milan, associating yourself with the favorite artists of Charles V and Philip II could win you commissions. Petrozzano, okay, there's another, just another glimpse of uh, this astonishing, you know, tumultuous uh, world of illusionism and violence, you know, of, of Pordenone. Um, yeah, so Petrozzano. Uh, places the signature, um, Simonus, Simon Petrizzanus Titiani Alumnus, in his, uh, that's the, uh, Simon Petrizzano, the uh, pupil of Titian, in his circa 1575 lamentation for the Veronica Chapel at Santa Maria della Scala. The tight brushwork and unbroken fields of color in particular are a complete departure from Titian's characteristic way of painting since the 1540s, and in fact are reminiscent of local Lombard painters like Moretto um, or Savoldo, with their silvery palette and smooth handling. There is no attempt in Petrizzano or Del Monte's work to emulate the blazing, fiery tones or the loose brushwork of Titian by mid-century. As a passion subject, Petrizzano's lamentation might especially seem to call into question the authority of Titian's most visible work in Milan. Admittedly, Modern Titian scholars have themselves been uneasy about this painting, either because its violent subject matter is supposedly uncongenial to a painter whose forte was the female nude, people have actually written this, or because it suggests a tentative dialogue with a too tentative dialogue with central Italian art. The cultural masonry with the scowling bust of Tiberius on a lintel provides the setting for the iconic moment of torture to which the Milanese confraternity of the corona, they're dedicated to the crown of thorns, uh, were dedicated. Um, Christ, appropriately, is modeled on the preeminent classical archetype of suffering, um, the Belvedere Leaco I. Um, I'm always staggered by the legs and what they do to the legs of the Leacoan. This is Titian uh, three years before he goes to Rome, and this painting is full of disegno already. 
It is perhaps not surprising that the 16th century artistic reception of Titian's crowning with thorns also reveals a, thick, a distinct pattern of unease. However, it was less the violence of the work than its general inscrutability that was the problem. When artists responded to the painting, they generally found that something needed to be fixed, that certain relationships needed to be clarified, and that the emotional register of the image, even the legibility of its narrative, was strangely indeterminate. It is as if there was another set of concerns at work, quite incidental to the tragic representation of a scriptural event. How are these two most forwardly placed figures, a soldier in chain mail, whose right arm encircles the shoulders of a helmeted man in green, to be understood in terms of the logic of the narrative? They seem above all to present a disruption or suspension in the violence enacted against the person of Christ. The helmeted figure, his expression scarcely legible in an area of shadow, tentatively handles the reed, a soldier's model, uh, mockery of a regal scepter in Christ's hand. The man in green, insofar as his pose is legible, seems to be genuflecting. It is not clear whether we are to understand the other figure as restraining him, or if his turning away of his head is supposed to convey repugnance at the bloody spectacle. The left hand of the figure of, in chainmail seems to clasp the bonds around Christ's wrists, resulting in a disturbing spatial anomaly. The soldier's elbow is level with his thigh, but Christ's wrists are withdrawn to his body and should be out of reach of the soldier's hand. There's a sense that the composition has been produced through a process of addition by a grafting of heterogeneous elements, and that this is a kind of montage without a final synthesis. It is manifest in a lack of resolution about the actions that are depicted and about the emotional tenor of the work, as if it seems to block or interrupt one kind of appeal to the beholder, the iconic suffering face of Christ, with another, the inward-leaning introspection of the picture's interior by figures viewed from the back. As much as this is the attitude of torturers intent on desecrating the image of God on earth, it could equally be described as a kind of embodied empathy, a desire for immersive connection with the man of sorrows, analogous to that of a devout beholder before the image. I think this takes us to the heart of one of Titian's leading preoccupations throughout his career, and Titian as a maker of icons, of images of Christ, as Christopher Nygren has recently um, written about. Contemporary artists, understandably, found this incongruity to be bewildering. Andrea Schiavone's woodcut response to Titian, an important document of the work's reception in Venice, is a clear attempt to rationalize the composition and to make sense of the odd behavior of the soldiers in the foreground. The entire composition has been rotated to the side, opening an interval of space between the two men now cast as commentators, and the group of Christ and his tormentors. Carlo Urbino's organ shutters for Santa Maria della Passione in Milan from the 1560s also constitute a thoroughgoing revision of Titian, rendering the anatomies and spatial relations more intelligible and including the contemplative-looking soldiers now on the side, removed from the main action. Giovanni da Monte, his crowning with thorns of 1583, is also a critique of the painter's alleged mentor, not just in its sober color and chiaroscuro, 
its hulking Portononi-like figures and the clarification of the space that they occupy, but again in its rationalization of dramatic motive. There seems to be here a clear distinction between cruelty and compunction on the part of Christ's tormentors. More telling still is the response of Antonio Campi in his 1580 Adoration of the Shepherds. In a composition that draws nothing from Titian in terms of style or technique, Campi has recast the anomalous soldiers in the crowning with thorns as a pair of companionable shepherds. And even Titian, in his own late revision of the composition, felt he had to resolve this arrangement here. We've got the omission of the figure of the man in green. Titian in late 16th century Lombardy was evoked talismanically as a famous name and one with Habsburg approval, but not as a model that would sustain pictorial practice. In purely practical terms, his approach to space and composition, as well as his brushwork, could not easily be assimilated to an increasingly systematic and pedagogically oriented theory of art. Even Lomazzo qualified his praise of Titian by mentioning his defects as a draftsman. And so too did Archbishop Federico Borromeo, um, the founder of the Ambrosiana Museum and Academy um, a decade later. Notwithstanding his enthusiasm for the Titian adoration of the shepherds, he'd acquired for the Academy and, and its museum. Borromeo celebrates his prized Titian as a horn of plenty, he says, from which painters could seek out and absorb the principles of painting, variety of expression, figures of animals in a variety of shapes, panoramic landscapes, um, accurate examples of architecture, the optical illusion of distance. He even goes on to assert, on who knows what basis, that even Michelangelo had ranked Titian higher than himself. Yet this does not prevent the archbishop from making what for him was probably a pedagogically necessary observation, that Titian is deficient in disegno and that the virgin and child are represented with, quote, less than perfect artistic skill. Titian finally is pronounced to be better at the lowness and natural movements of animals and camp followers. The archbishop, moreover, exhibited works in Titian's late manner as exemplars of bad practice, like this uh, studio version of uh, the, the lamentation, the um, entombment of Christ, of the relationship between uh, facilitas um, and incuria, uh, carelessness, describing what he saw as the exhaustion and depletion of Titian, Titian's late style, in part to Titian's desire for gain. He apparently painted these, says Borromeo, after he'd become complacent and sated with his own glory, or rather drained by his exertions. While the facilitas of his work and the confident drawing deserve praise, in other respects, it was done so listlessly that one would say that even Titian himself was fully aware of his own sloppiness when he was painting them. A large number of disappointed or perplexed clients from the 1540s onwards would have agreed with Federico Borromeo, and not just because Titian was perhaps not well served by, you know, second rank studio versions of his works. Uh, the 1543-45 Pentecost for Santo Spirito in Isola had to be repainted following complaints from the canons of the church, a lawsuit, and an appeal to the Pope. Patrons of an altarpiece for the Cathedral of Cerevalle complained about the quality of the work they received in 1547. Down in Naples, Titian's Annunciation of 1557 
for the Pinelli Chapel in San Domenico was attacked for its drab color, the faulty proportions of the angel, and his indistinct facial features. And we know this from a treatise in, written in the defense of the painting by the botan botanist Bartolomeo Maranta, uh, written sometime after 1562. Yet it was not just a lack of studio quality control in the work that inhibited Titian's impact. This has to do, I would propose, with the increasingly alienating character of Titian's art from about 1540 onwards. I'm going to suggest that this estranging quality, which I'll be mapping out, is the result of Titian's uneasy relation to the role he was increasingly called upon to perform, to be not just the chief painter of Venice, but, as it were, to be Venetian painting as this was increasingly characterized in a rising literature of art from the 1540s onwards. He himself, in earlier works for the terra firma, like the Gazzi altarpiece for Ancona, with its topographical view of the city on the lagoon, had impressed his characteristic idiom, a sort of flaring color, um, with signs of Venetian identity. In 1544, Aretino wrote his famous uh, description of the city of Venice as, a painterly as if it were a painterly invention and flaring light and flaming color by nature itself, calling upon Titian, whose brush is nature's very soul, to render it. Yet the more his contemporaries invested in his work as a definitive formulation of Venetian painting, the more Titian retreats into a kind of self-reflexive, even solipsistic placelessness. The works preempt their own history of non-reception, of incomprehension, and sometimes outright rejection. Now here I need to recap some of the key preoccupations of Titian's works in the years preceding the Milan Crowning with Thorns. Above all, so we can understand how these preoccupations are transformed in the 1540s and 1550s. From the very beginning, Titian's rendering of bodies in space has a self-reflexive dimension intensely engaged with the nature of perceptual engagement between painting and its viewers. His naturalism could in fact be described as a kind of meta-naturalism. This is manifest in the degree to which Titian's pictorial structures seem to exacerbate the contrast between two modes of perceptual engagement with painting. What a literate person of the time might have called prospettiva, perspective, the creation of the illusion of deep space, and rilievo, the idea, the sort of sculptural effect, figures emerging from the uh, plane of the picture itself. Um, some art historians might say the optical and the haptic. The presentation of the Virgin, painted for the Sala dell'Albergo, or the Scuola della Carità, for all its fulfillment of site-specific requirements, is characteristic of Titian's tendency to organize his compositions in terms of attention between prospettiva and rilievo. The former concerns the correlation of fictive space with the viewer's position before the image, the way that the composition imposes a necessary viewing distance, as David Rosand showed, so that it can be apprehended as a whole. Uh, Rosand uh, demonstrated a long time ago that this painting was designed to be seen by a beholder standing in front of the Viverini Giovanni d'Alemagna um, image of the Virgin here from this point. It works with the perspective of the room. Not that you'll be convinced by that photograph, but it does, it does work. Um, that dimension and experience in the work is underscored by the spacing and distancing effects of the gazes of figures within the picture itself. In the case of the presentation, the viewer's position is reciprocated by the obelisk in the background of the painting, 
widely understood in the Renaissance, in Renaissance literature and hieroglyphics as symbolizing a ray of light. And this axis of viewer with obelisk is at right angles, cuts across the major horizontal in the painting. That defined by the virgin's ascent of the temple steps and the gazes of the majority of the figures to the left, which all run parallel to the picture plane. Not only does Mary follow the vector of vision of most of the witnessing figures, she herself emits rays of heavenly light. As you can see from this nice restoration photograph here. So the um, you know, perspective understood as the rendering of the motion of light traveling in straight lines and to the eye of the beholder. Yet Titian also includes figures and motifs that self-referentially embody the principles of relievo, the capacity of pictorial illusion to appeal to our sense of touch, and which calls for a closer, more immersive engagement with the image, even at risk of a loss of the grasp of the whole and its narrative and theological logic. These are the statuesque market woman selling eggs. And then it's not very visible here, but this um, sort of this carved torso this truncated cuirass sculpture um, in the narrow space between the wall of the steps and the picture plane. While such motifs signal the haptic dimensions of the image, they're here dissociated from any effective or devotional relation to the subject, as if standing for the appeal of painterly artifice alone. This despite some you know, incredibly uh, ingenious iconographical explain explanations. Um, now, this careful balancing of the optic and the haptic comes under pressure in the crowning with thorns, as sort of I've been suggesting, with its suppression of perspectival interval and emphasis on the close, incipiently tactile engagement of the two figures with the body of Christ. Such a conception of painting in terms of its sensory dimensions and, ter and in terms of a division of perceptual experience is present from the outset in Titian's earliest works. Uh, one of the, this is probably um, among the very earliest, uh, 1506, where once again we get the interval of the gaze that holds figures apart, sort of reverential, formal distance, also goes with a kind of stasis. And then look down here, we have this bacchanalian relief, characterized not only by an appeal to touch, but an actual dramatization of tactile interaction among the figures. It seems to be figures cavorting at a ritual in honor of Eros, Cupid, who is, you know, an amazing stroke here is reaching up and caressing the keys of St. Peter. And this is the rock of St. Peter, of course. And of course, this is, um, um, the Pope here is, it's Alexander VI is the Borgia Pope. So maybe there's some kind of, uh, you know, intended slight, you know. Of, um, but we can go further and we can talk about this uh, fabulous picture, this t sacred and profane love. Uh, the two women, one looking at the other, invites you to complete a triangulation of gazes. So you have to stand apart to really grasp the relationship of one to the other. So you complete that triangle. Uh, meanwhile, there's something going on down here that makes you want to draw forth. And it's something much more turbulent, sort of collision bodies with each other. And just to like underscore this, we have a Cupid being a narcissus and plunging his hand right into the surface of the water up here, pretty much as Alberti um, embracing by art the surface of the picture. And again, we have this other detail here. We have a, a spout, which is channeling, channeling water in our direction, sort of engulfing us. The painting is engulfing us with itself. Um, and then here, a somewhat controversial painting. It was amazing to see this in Washington uh, 10 years ago in, in the show that David Brown organized. Uh, um, 
the pastoral concert where we get a gendering of these effects. Tactility is, you know, uh, right at the surface of the picture. We get these very, these appeals to our sense of touch in these brilliantly rendered uh, female figures um, who turn away. Well, we, we can't make eye contact with them. We can't see this figure's face at all. And then the two males are seated on a diagonal, perspectival di diagonal that takes us into space where we meet this musical shepherd who completes the concert, um, as we see here. And just one more, the famous, uh, wonderful Getty drawing of the, uh, of the landscape of the sleeping woman, where once again, a, 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 a strongly embodied female figure, again with no face, with a cancelled facial expression, uh, in the, right up here in the foreground, and back on this uh, orthogonal recession, we have these male figures of shepherds um, located within pictorial, the pictorial depth which they embody, which they symbolize. By the 1540s, in the wake of projects like the presentation of the Virgin, Titian was thoroughly poised to dominate the art of painting in Venice, and with invitations to the papal and imperial courts far beyond Venice. Contemporaries increasingly proclaimed him to be one of the three greatest artists of the era, and of those other joint claimants, Michelangelo and Raphael, only one was now living. All local challenges to his supremacy had either left Venice, like Lotto and Bordone, or they had died, as was the case with Pordenone in 1539, followed by Savoldo um, in 1548. Some leading artists from central Italy had come and gone. Vasari himself was briefly active in Venice in 1541-42, but what should have been his most prominent and visible commission did not progress beyond the design stage, a ceiling decoration for the Augustinians at Santo Spirito in Isola. When he left Venice, the commission was entrusted to Titian, who may also have had access to the three designs for ceiling paintings that the Aretine artist had submitted. It's been a sort of convention to see Titian as somehow shocked into an awareness of central Italian art by the recent presence of the Tuscans, leading him to a competitive striving that led him away from his natural strengths of an artist, Titian's so-called mannerist crisis. Um, it seems much more likely that Titian was now claiming the legacy of the lately deceased Pordenone, a specialist in violent subjects with turbulent disruptions of the pictorial surface. And uh, see this, see, there's Portanone and the organ shutters in Venice um, at the Scuola di San Rocco, and this defiance of the picture pane, uh, this sort of massive muscular bodies hurtling forward, as we see above our heads, or we would have seen above our heads in the Santo Spirito paintings. And the sense of embodiment reinforced by, again, um, the obscuring um, or occlusion of the figures' faces. Um, yeah, the, the, the National Gallery, you can see this um, upstairs, the St. John and Patmos, a ceiling painting commissioned by the Scuola di San Giovanni Evangelista, 1544 to 48, and the gallery dates it later. Um, I'm following Sidney Friedberg. Um, one of the group of works which Sidney Friedberg saw as an expropriation, expropriation rather than assimilation of Portinone and Correggio. The extreme he says, the extreme of Titian's Romanism passed before his actual experience of Rome itself. And I think this is a wonderful observation. Um, he calls Titian's experiments with, uh, foreshort with the foreshortened body an illusionism, a la Portononi or Correggio. Um, he refers to that as Romanism. Um, um, but it's got nothing actually to do with contact with the art of Rome itself, which is where Titian goes in 1545. And this is the last occasion, I think, 
in Italy where Titian will actively engage with one of his Italian contemporaries, um, like Correggio here, St. John and Patmos, St. John and Patmos. Um, there was also no sense that foreshortenings um, were you know, the, considered to be uniquely Central Italian. Paolo Pino, a writer in the Veneto, tells us what, you know, tells his Venetian contemporaries and everybody how they should employ these. They're a perfection of art. Employ large figures in your works because in those you can best organize the proportions of living figures, and in all your works that there be at least one figure all foreshortened, mysterious, and difficult, because by this means you'll be seen as worthy by those who understand the perfections of art. The 1540s is also the decade when Titian expanded his operations in the peninsula, much as Pordenone had done in the previous decade. He succeeded in placing major works not only in Milan, as we saw, but also in Florence, in Urbino, and most importantly in Rome, where the artist spent most of 1545 working for the Farnese, and where he met Michelangelo, um, whose Leda he alluded to in the Danae for Cardinal Alessandro Farnese. The rivalry of Michelangelo and Titian has been overplayed in scholarship to my mind, and I'm inclined to resist its current status as a master key to Titian's late work. Titian regarded Michelangelo as a colleague, and shortly before going to Rome, he enlisted his support in a suit over a benefice for his son. But in subsequent years, he must have become aware that he and Michelangelo were being set up as polarized systems of artistic values. It was Aretino in this decade that was largely responsible for the fateful characterization in terms of colore and through rather literal conceptions of naturalism, qualities through which he was to be distinguished in Michelangelo. The famous distinction, or was it a paralyzing opposition, first occurs in a letter from Aretino to Paolo Munuzio from 1542, where, he, where the former praises the writer Speroni Speroni, but claiming that he draws like Michelangelo and colors like Titian. The paragone of Michelangelo's disegno and Titian's colore was immediately taken up by Francesco Sansovino in 1543 and by P even by Pino in his dialogue of 1548 that we just heard from. For Pino, the three parts of painting, disegno, colore, invenzione, all found their most effect uh, effective, perfect expression in the artistic trio Michelangelo, Raphael, and Titian. All of Italian art for the literati was now conceivable in shorthand terms under three proper names. And so it would be too for Ludovico Dolce in 1557 and in many ways for Vasari. And from the 1550s, the distinction between the individual styles of these artists became aggravated by more polemical, regionally polarizing comparisons. Titian's status as the most internationally prominent artist in Italy was confirmed with his visit to the imperial court at Augsburg in 1548 and the consolidation of his privileged relationship to the Habsburg family. The stakes were high, but being an Italian abroad was one that Titian performed with characteristic aplomb and ambition, producing not only magnificent state portraits, but monumental history paintings, which were commentaries on Italian art in the larger sense. With the latter, Titian showed himself to be capable of holding his own as the equal of other artists in Italy, equal of any other artist in Italy, not just Pordenone now, but also Michelangelo. For the Chateau of Mary of Hungary at Bash, he produced compositions of epic horror and violence, the so-called Four Great Sinners. 
um, which far more assertively than previous works from the decade show Titian displaying his command of the Michelangelo effect with works devoted to the agonistic muscular nude. The four great sinners signal Titian's sense of his new role as the emperor's Italian artist. The role seems to have prompted a systematic evaluation and recapitulation of the work of contemporaries, but only in works destined to be sent out of Italy to the courts of the Habsburgs and their clients. His great adoration of the Trinity, or La Gloria, was made for Charles V in 1552 to 54 and taken by the emperor to his post-abdication retirement hermitage at the Abbey of Eusta. The composition was recorded and circulated in an engraving made under Titian's supervision by Cornelis Court. It could thus be compared with other works by leading artists reproduced and circulated in the same way, notably Michelangelo's controversial Last Judgment. What is particularly striking about the composition is the confident use Titian makes of the work of fellow artists in, in, the, in ways that the polemical construction then taking shape of Titian as the champion of the Venetian tradition really doesn't allow for. While La Gloria does not quote directly from, from Michelangelo's great Vatican fresco, it clearly solicits comparison with it. Moreover, Titian borrows unashamedly from Lorenzo Lotto's Carmine altarpiece, a painting which would soon be savagely maligned for its weird color in Dolce's Aretino. And I'm thinking in particular the, um, sort of the, the figures on these massed clouds over the landscape. <clears throat> and uh, even in his heavily veiled figure, the Virgin here, um, quoting a popular composition by Savoldo, which exists in, in several versions of the Magdalen. Um, Titian's ambition here could now be described as an eminent one, a virtuosic re-performance of the best of his fellow practitioners in Italy. The painting also underscores Titian's own distinction as a portraitist, certainly a basis on which he could claim to surpass contemporaries like Michelangelo. Up here we'll see Philip II and uh, Isabella of Portugal and uh, Charles V himself. Yet such engagement with the work of contemporaries is increasingly rare in Titian's commissions for locations in Venice and Northern Italy, a circumstance already apparent in some key works of the 1540s. In Italy, there are no works like the Adoration of the Trinity, where Titian engages with all that for him was noteworthy in contemporary Italian arts. The field in Italy was now dominated by regionalizing preoccupations that foreclosed this kind of engagement partition, increasingly constituted as the Venetian rival to the Tuscan Michelangelo. Partisan regional lines are drawn with the appearance of Vasari's lives in 1550, and of course, more forcibly with the 1568 edition, and then between these, Dolce's Aretino of 1557, with its characterization of Titian as the heir of Raphael, embodying all the qualities of perfect painting lacking in Michelangelo. Truth to nature, pleasurableness and charm, piacevolezza, and convenevole sprezzatura, effortlessness with, with propriety. While Pino, in, the 15, in 1548, as we saw, had praised foreshortened figures as a key manifestation of the power of art, that position is radically revised by Dolce, who has Aretino remarked that foreshortenings undermine the pleasure of viewers and that painting was invented primarily in order to give pleasure. This means that even Pordenone is unavailable as a resource for Venetian artists if they're to follow Dolce, since his signature effects have been recoded as Roman, um, as Michelangelo-like. 
In his works for Italy, such a polemical polarization in Venice and Rome begins to exert its pressures on Titian's decision-making. The problem now was this. Emulation of Rome and to an ancient and modern canon was necessary for any artist, especially any Italian artist, would have claimed to a more than local status. Yet engaging with the modern manner of Rome would, from the 1550s onwards, only be seen as an attempt to pit himself against Michelangelo, to settle for a situation where Titian would be defined by comparison with his contemporary. That Titian sought to avoid comparison with his colleagues is indicated in a rare comment on his own painting, um, recorded by the Spanish royal secretary Antonio Perez, where he explains that his broad brushwork in impasto was a new path. Um, I, this is just what Dolce says. Um, about Titian's painting, every stroke of the brush belongs to those strokes that nature's in the habit of making, um, talking about um, you know, these sort of erotic mythologies, you know, this, with the very, very sensual paintings, um, 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 which come to stand now for Titian um, after Dolce. So this is a very famous uh, comment on Titian, uh, supposing quoting Titian in his own words. It, it's, it's well known, but I think it's worth uh, thinking about again. I'm not confident, said Titian, of achieving the delicacy and beauty of the brushwork of Michelangelo, Raphael, Correggio, and Parmigianino. And if I did, I would be judged with them, or else be considered to be an imitator. But ambition, which is as natural in my art as in any other, urges me to choose a new path to make myself famous, much as the others acquired their own fame from the way that, from the way that they followed. But of course, there's more to this new path than loose brushwork. Increasingly branded as the painter who walks in step with nature, Titian from the 1540s revisits some long-standing preoccupations of his own painting, in which the parameters of pictorial illusionism were explored to an extraordinary degree. At the same time, Titian's art for Italian locations turns away from the protocols of emulation and towards an experimental and self-referential concern with the making of sacred art. The effects of suspended drama in the Milan crowning with thorns are even more apparent in the Ecce Homo, now in Vienna, painted for the Palazzo Talenti d'Anna and inscribed Tizianus Eques, um, it says uh, Fecit, 1543. Don't hear. Uh, um, um, Eques Caesaris, the uh, Knight of the Empire. Now, one recent account of this painting um, by Blake de Maria has placed questions of cultural and national identity at center stage, and not without good reason. The patron, Zwane Danna, was the member of a Dutch merchant family, the Van den Hanens, which had settled in Venice in 1537. And his father, endowed with an imperial knighthood, would become a full citizen of the Republic in 1545. The painting is thus seen to negotiate the dual identity of Zwane Danna as both an aspiring new Venetian and an imperial subject. His connection to the empire signaled heraldically with the prominent Habsburg eagle on a soldier's shield. If the thesis that the patron's investment in becoming Venetian is at all a factor in the production of this painting, it might be asked how at this date being Venetian could be professed by pictorial means. Is there a model for expressing identification with Venice that a Netherlandish expatriate or a painter rising in Habsburg circles could draw upon? Certainly the horizontal format and the incorporation of portraits in a sacred narrative recall the characteristic form of um, community statement represented by paintings for the Venetian confraternities, like the presentation of the Virgin that we uh, looked at a few moments ago. Um, yet Titian is also now conspicuously drawn on uh, Northern European art. 
the result cannot simply be described as a hybrid of Venetian scuola painting and transalpine prints. The mood or dramatic effect differs pointedly from both. Uh, Albrecht Dürer had adopted the convention of showing Christ presented by Pontius Pilate, who offers, utters the words, behold the man, to a gesturing, jeering crowd whose coarse features signals a, con a condition of baseness or bereftness of grace. Such an appearance does not characterize the heterogeneous array of beholders of Christ's humanity that Titian has introduced, several of them portraits of leading political figures or family members, perhaps. The emotional disposition of the crowd in response to Christ and to Pilate's words ranges from the unruly pointing and gesticulation to a detached composure appropriate to portraits, to cases where it is simply difficult to name. There is a curious sense with the group on the steps that they have paused in their very advance towards Christ. We have this, again, this, inter, this emergence of this interval. Um, even if they are about to draw away. And once again, in no case is the countenance of any one of these more dynamic participants visible. They're screened by the arms of other figures who themselves turn their backs on us. One such figure, the soldier with the um, monogrammed shield, seems poised on the very edge of the painting, as if leaning and backing outwards into the beholder's space. As the most strongly modeled and volumetrically persuasive figure in the picture, he corresponds to the haptic relievo effects in Titian's earlier work. However, while serving as a transitional element between the beholder's world and the pictorial space, he's now also now a perspectival device, backing away from Christ as if to prescribe the disposition of the beholder regarding the entirety of the scene. Like the two soldiers in the, um, in the recent Milan altarpiece, he appears to model a relationship with the painting that is not that of gestural pathos or emotionally effective expression. It looks like a fraught attempt to, compre to compress contemplative distance with something like immersive engagement. It's an impossible situation, you might think. The painting, unlike Dürer's print, is void of the usual emotional cues to the beholder. The one overt manifestation of affect that is not blocked from our view is that of the youth seated on the step below Christ, a more grown-up version of the oblivious little boy endurer, perhaps. Um, uh, and you can see that, the, uh, in this case, the dog is actually barking at the crowd. The dog is at least aware of the crowd. The boy's posture and facial features suggest he is startled or frightened, but by what? He's not been looking at the drama unfolding behind him is not to be assumed that he's even aware of it. Something is splitting apart here. Gestural and physiognomic rhetoric, the manifestation of affetti is detaching itself, not yet fully, from the logic of narrative. Rhetorical forms, that is the expressive pantomime of gesture and expression for which Mantegna, Leonardo, and Raphael had all been admired, have become divorced from rhetorical function or narrative context. Once again, um, it's a very poor illustration. An imitation by Schiavone from the 1560s suggests a critique and a corrective clarification. There are no portraits, no shield-bearing soldier, and the boy on the steps turns to look at Christ. Uh, I don't know where this painting is. It's, it was on the market recently, and it's been very poorly published. If anybody knows, I would appreciate you letting me know. The, boy, the painting is an amalgam of visual codes, Christian iconography, 
gesture, physiognomy, physiognomy, portraiture, heraldry, that maintains the effect of a composite rather than anything approaching a unity. Titian's staging of the Ecce Homo, a foundational moment in Christian revelation, and one that authorized the very tradition of Christian images of the suffering Christ, um, involves a dialectic of pictorial effects. On one hand, relations found in a kind of bodily participation, the soldier with the shield, um, rather than in vision alone, are contrasted with the visual perspectival staging of the event. The cumulative effect is of a kind of atrophy, a liquidation of narrative and effective formulas around the paradoxically humiliated but potent image of Christ. Titian's painting is a serious and in fact quite radical attempt to reconceive the language of religious narrative painting, re re refusing the unities of a narrative economy represented by something like Aristotle's poetics or by the normative history paintings um, by Raphael. Thus, the Ecce Homo could for these reasons more effectively be described as an anti-drama that liquidates pictorial rhetoric. It signals renunciation and also a degree of struggle, I think, on Titian's part. In the ensuing years, Titian in his Italian works becomes Venetian increasingly by opting out of any dialogue with artistic contemporaries or predecessors. There are no more paintings like the ones made for Santo Spirito or the Scuola Grande di San Giovanni Evangelista. After in 1550, it is um, the younger painter, Jacopo Tintoretto, who supplied this kind of work. And it was Tintoretto who laid claim to the pictorial goal of reconciling the Coloria Titian and the disegno of Michelangelo. Titian himself, I'm proposing, renounced that very dichotomy. It is significant that in his 1562 defense of Titian's Naples Annunciation, Maranta had accounted for its anomalies um, by characterizing them as metafora pittorale, pictorial metaphors. In other words, it's a, the one non-naturalistic, non-naturalizing account of Titian's painting that we have that sees Titian's practice in allegorical terms. Titian's metaphoric departures from observable reality and the service of religious meaning are paralleled by Maranta to Michelangelo's poetic and allegorical approach in The Last Judgment, a painting roundly condemned by Aretino and by the Aretino character in Dolce's dialogue. In its lack of delicacy and diligence, in its licentious approach to traditional iconographies, Titian's um, reworking of the composition for San Salvador, um, in, um, in which a vase of roses bursts into flames, um, is even more explicitly in the metaphoric register, flouting Aretino's pronouncements on decorum, naturalism, grazia, and even intelligibility. Titian has reversed the traditional postures of the angel and the virgin to think of how they normally appear in paintings, right? Virgin with her arms crossed on her chest, and then the kind of hailing gesture of the angel have been reassigned. A pantomime of young angels above makes sure that we notice this. They're doing the same thing. Um, the, the virgin's gesture is echoed by a nude male angel above Gabriel. Over the virgin, a clothed and a female angel makes the traditional cross-signed signs of acquiescence. So much for decorum, naturalism, and grazia. Why did Titian take so long to finish the martyrdom of St. Sebastian for the Church of the, Church of the Croce Firi in Venice? Commissioned by Lorenzo Mazzolo, following Titian's return from Rome in 1546, it appears to have been completed and installed several years after the client's death in 1557, when his widow, Elisabetta Carini, assumed responsibility for the commission. Was the delay the result of an initial lack of follow-up, um, uh, follow-through on her part, 
or the unfinished condition of the site? Or was it hesitation by Titian himself? He'd been called upon to depict a subject with an ancient Roman setting. This made turning to exemplars of Roman art and architecture inevitable, and the pressure on the artist to confront this imperative must have been intensified by his visit to Rome in 1545. Titian turned to a work of classical sculpture housed in Venice, part of a collection that had become a civic expression of Venice itself, the Grimani dying gladiator. His adaptation, however, has the appearance of an improvisation on the canvas, rather than any attempt to transmit the foreshortened volume of a sculpture. The foreshortening of the saint's right leg is optically correct when looked at close up, but from a viewing distance of a few feet, it disturbingly truncates the limb. The saint's tormentors are even more cursory in their rendering. Their relative positions in space are hard to read and create no perspective, while they obey no consistent system of proportions. The work turns its back on some of the elementary principles of disegno. While as a demonstration of colorito and its near monochrome and its shadowy obscurity, it seems to be reaching at extremes. Darkness seems to envelop figures and to render them indistinct, just as the fiery illumination dissolves boundaries and makes surfaces appear without boundaries. Again, the contrast with the works Titian sent to Spain in the 1550s is striking. Um, these all show a far more assertive command of anatomy and foreshortening, as well as a confident assimilation of antique sculptural models. They employ a luminous, flaring polychromy, no matter how dark, tragic, or violent the mood. It is ironic, then, that Philip II, hearing of the completion of Titian's altarpiece, requested a new version, he would even be happy with a copy, for his new Basilica of the Escorial, dedicated to um, St. Lawrence. The Crochifery's willingness to sell their version to the king suggests from their point of view, the commission had been something less than a resounding success. Titian insisted on making an entirely new painting. Perhaps there was a tentative or experimental or simply negligent quality in the Venice work that made it unsuited to a self-presentation in the international arena at the center of the Habsburg Empire, or the Spanish Empire. In any event, the version sent to the Escorial in 1567 makes some concessions to its highly visible context and to Titian's role as the king's Italian painter. The murky obscurity of the original version has been relieved. Gone is the perspective of Corinthian columns atop a flight of steps, replaced now with a lofty arch giving onto a moonlight sky. Figures are more tightly resolved and strongly modeled, more distinguishable to a richer palette of colors. Titian has taken more pains over the saint's anatomy. Instead of a perfunctory foreshortening, his right leg and hip are now flexed so as to parallel the picture plane. For a work destined to be sent outside of Italy, Titian has produced a composition that seems more confidently Romanizing than his original version for Venice. And yet these revisions bring further tensions. The opening up of the space to bodies that assert a kind of sculptural volume is a clear departure from its previous work, from the previous work. Yet that effect is generated through disruptions that risk compromising the work's narrative and effective unity. Um, like, who is that? What is that person doing? Boy in bright green, seems to be redhead in bright green pushing his way through the crowd, his purpose seems less to clarify the narrative than to force a breach in what might otherwise be read as congestion of bodies. He is, I would propose, related in function to the foreground figures in the cranny with thorns and ecce homo. The purpose of all these figures, undefined in terms of narrative function, is to manifest a pictorial effect. The effect is conceivable as the forced coalescence of perspectival distancing, 
the interval between the viewer and the painting that enables us to grasp the work as a whole, with that of closeness or immersion in the painting, or in this case, imagining a physical motion through the picture as if one could push through its very substance. The arch that displaces the colonnade of the original, in fact, suggests an opening in the surface of the painting, enabling Titian to evoke bodily access by the observer to the resistant and materially dense interior beyond the surface. The engraving that Cornelis Court produced in 1571, part of a series designed to publicize the Titian canon throughout Europe, is a corrective synthesis of the Escorial and Crocifoli versions, and the engraver goes to considerable lengths to clarify and solidify anatomical details and surface modeling left in Kuwait or obscured by shadow in Titian's original. And yet, it is telling that as the Venetian school comes into existence through such publicity and would achieve a measurable success in the subsequent history of academic arts, it failed to make a, st a strong impression on Titian's erstwhile Habsburg supporters. Titian's failure to produce a high altarpiece for the Escorial with the St. Lawrence of 1567 was followed by equally unsuccessful bids from El Greco and by failed negotiations with Veronese and Tintoretto, where his trial pieces were delivered in 1583. Philip II turns attention to Federico Zuccheri and to, Polidoro, um, to Pellegrino Tibaldi, artists far less constrained by regional identification whose career had been shaped by travel and by a trans-regional orientation of which Lomazzo would have approved. In conclusion, Titian's Italian work by the 1550s and the few works in the preceding decade is seeking to distance itself from the critical binaries upheld by his commentators and from any claim to be performing its synthesis. His work seems to overcome an altogether different dualism that had manifested itself in, its earlier, in his earlier works. Pictorial relief, the illusion that elements in a painting stand out from the pictorial surface and extend into the world of the viewer, is compressed into an uneasy coexistence with perspective where visually active bodies are separated and distinguished in immeasurable space. Space becomes dense and form evanescent. And the haptic-optic compression of the late works goes at a refusal of physiognomic codes of conventionalized response, a refusal of standardized emotional terms of engagement. It is as if what must now see or be the agent of perception is the entire body and not just the eye. Closeness indicates a level of absorption which takes us beyond the normal decorum of response. And that is nowhere more the case than with the extraordinary violence of the later pictures, notably the flaying of Marcius. The tragic sense is curiously understated here, mainly because several of the protagonists are engaged at a level of closeness in which the horror of the spectacle is not apparent. Their relation is one of wonder or curious immersion in a surface or a texture. Getting close, getting absorbed, indicates a suspension of action and of violence. This is the artist's own perspective from which light and air become flame-like and matter seems to liquefy, to resemble molten silver, molten gold or silver, or even blood. The codes of gender shift between protagonists. All these suggest a destabilizing flux or vitality within the visible world, which it is his pictorial task to reveal. This has no longer anything to do with Venice or being Venetian. That was now the role of Tintoretto or Jacopo Bassano, and perhaps above all, of Veronese. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 